Howdy, folks, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Larson. And I'm Kirsten Michael, previously Belial. Both Zach and I work for the Fremont County Museum System located in the heart of West Central Wyoming. Using artifacts from our three museums and and interviews with experts, we're here to discover and in some cases rediscover the quirky, the heart-wrenching, the fascinating stories of Fremont County, Wyoming, and the American West. So on our last mini episode that we just released, we talked to a very interesting man, formerly a, a Lander, Wyoming local named Topher Downham, and he is currently the outreach coordinator for the City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks. It was awesome to hear about what he does, and it was really fascinating, some of the stuff that he brought up. Yeah, so if you haven't heard that yet, make sure you go back one episode and listen to uh, to his interview. Yeah. So also, so joining us this episode is actually another person that works at the City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks, and that is Dave Sutherland. And without further ado, here's the next interview. If you want to start with um, who you are and where you work, that'd be great. I'm Dave Sutherland. I'm an interpretive park naturalist at the City of Boulder, Colorado's Open Space and Mountain Parks Department. Um, But before I came to Colorado, I spent three years working in the Galapagos Islands as the head of environmental education and interpretation at the Charles Darwin Research Station. So I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Like as growing up as a kid, the Galapagos Island was just like where the weird birds were that Darwin studied. But you were there, you were the educational interpreter and things like that. So how did you get that job? Like how did you end up there? I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras, and after the Peace Corps, I got so jazzed about Latin America and the tropics and tropical conservation and trying to find ways to, and in those days, I was back in the 80s, and it was like, oh, we got to save the rainforest and all this. So I got a master's degree in interpretation, which is essentially how do you make science and history funny (laughs) so that people will pay attention to it, you know. Um, How how do you make uh, learning information so entertaining that people will want to stay and listen to you in spite of anything else they could be doing. And I had sort of a a secondary focus in conservation in the tropics and in Latin America. And just about the time I finished my master's program, this job for head of education at the Galapagos Research Station came open. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to apply for that. (laughs) And, And I got it. Um, I was a Spanish speaker because I'd been in the Peace Corps and I'd spent a lot of time in Costa Rica and so on. And so uh, my wife and I packed our bags and we moved to the equator. That would be a very large difference compared to like Wyoming and Colorado and could not imagine. Was it hard to adjust? Was it hard to like... Um, I don't think, no, it wasn't particularly hard to adjust because we'd both already spent so much time in Latin America. What was difficult was that the the Galapagos Islands are volcanic islands. They're located right on the equator, 600 miles off the coast of Ecuador. So they're really quite literally in the middle of nowhere. And pretty much everything that you um, eat has to be brought in on ships um, or on airplanes or something. So you really cut off. And, uh, you know, at, at that time, we didn't have email. And so we had one, there was a fax machine that connected to a satellite. So if we wanted to talk to the outside world, we could send letters, which took about two weeks. And mm-hmm. then you'd wait two weeks for the return. Or you could send a fax if the fax machine was working, and then you'd <laughs> wait for the return. And um, so I think probably the isolation was the hardest part. Mm-hmm. But we already spoke Spanish, and we were quite familiar with Latin America. Um, 
And we had a little house in town there. And that's something a lot of people don't realize about the Galapagos Islands is that there are over 20,000 residents in the islands spread between four communities. And so we lived in one of the communities. We had a little house right down by the bank. Um, We could hear the high tide at night um, where the ocean was lapping up in the bay from our house. We could hear the ocean. Mm -hmm. And that was really a neat thing. So who was your audience that you were doing programs for or doing your job for? Um, We worked with two primary audiences. Probably uh, the most important audience, I would say, were the actual people who lived in the Galapagos Islands. Galapagos is a province of the South American country of Ecuador. And almost all of those 20,000 plus people who live there are Ecuadorian citizens. Uh, They live in the Galapagos Islands and everyday living takes a toll on the islands in terms of, you know, people cutting down firewood or where do you put trash or people bringing animals and plants from the mainland that aren't native to the Galapagos ecosystems and having them get loose. Um, There's just a lot of human impact from having 20,000 people living in the islands. So a lot of the work that we did was helping uh, the people who lived there come to understand why the islands were so special, why they were an international uh, tourist destination, why they were sort of the crucible of natural sciences, why scientists and tourists were coming from all over the world to come to these utterly unique islands that for a lot of the people who lived there, they're just, this is where I live, this is my mm-hmm. home. Um, and so they weren't doing anything to particularly take care of it or live light on the land or have a low impact lifestyle. They were just living their lives. And it was taking a terrible toll on the environment. The other audience that we worked with were the tourists and visitors who were coming from all over the world. And I mean everywhere. People from Afghanistan and people from Japan and people from Korea and people from Germany and from France and Australia and the United States. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and so one of the things I did, I was a guide trainer and I trained the guides who would then lead the um, tours around Galapagos. Because when you visit the Galapagos Islands, you're not just allowed to go anywhere you want. You have to go to specific designated visitor sites with a guide. Part of the reason for that being the islands are so fragile and so pristine that uh, it's essential to keep the visitor impacts to a minimum. And the Galapagos National Park Service has done a marvelous job doing that. In spite of the high visitation numbers, I think a lot of the impacts caused by visitors are pretty minimal. Mm -hmm. But a big piece of that is you go with a guide and the guide makes Mm -hmm. sure you stay on the trail and you don't harass the boobies and you Mm -hmm. don't harass the albatrosses and you don't chase the penguins and you don't ride the giant tortoises and you don't throw litter Mm -hmm. around and you know you go and you visit the islands but in a respectful way. Yeah, leave no trace behind. And it's it's uh, there is no other choice if you're a tourist in Galapagos. It is Mm -hmm. leave no trace or else you remain on the boat and you're not allowed to go on land. Yeah, some of our national parks and state parks, I w- they would probably love to have like somebody with every group being like, don't touch that. Stop getting close to the buffalo. I've witnessed some things, and I've actually, I would like to say I did not yell, but I definitely have sternly told people to get back on the boardwalk in Yellowstone. I really don't want to witness um, chicken human noodle soup being made when somebody falls into a geyser. So I could only imagine, yeah, don't chase the boobies. Um, being a very uh, important thing. There's actually a session that's going to go on that's it's like called Don't, Don't, Don't Touch. Or... Yeah. And so a big part of what we were trying to do is to help the guides learn how to communicate that to visitors without just overwhelming them with negatives. You mm-hmm. can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the other thing. And you you, you, you can't even have a good time here. Uh, but the visitors that did go to Galapagos and went around on the boats and visited the sites, I, I don't think I ever talked to anybody who hadn't had their wildest expectations of their visit exceeded 
by the experience of visiting the Galapagos Islands. Mm -hmm. Among other things, the animals there are, they're very innocent. They don't have any fear of, of people. So you can go right up to a booby on its nest or an albatross on its nest or a giant tortoise. The Darwin's finches will practically come and perch on you. Mm -hmm. um, the lizards have no fear of you. You can take National Geo Geographic quality photographs with a cell phone because you're right next to the animal and because the animals have never been harassed or bothered by people and there are very few natural predators there, the animals have no fear. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of the reason we have guides out there leading the groups is because it would be very easy to take advantage of that. You know, yeah. you could, if we didn't have guides, there'd probably be people picking up iguanas to have their photographs taken with them or chasing the booby off the nest or something. So, yeah, trying to balance the positive interactions with interpretation and education with the, we have policies, we have rules. It's not a free for all. Um, it's probably a really big part of all of our jobs. Um, so that is an amazing kind of backstory, kind of experience that you had. I, I can sometimes I wonder how I even interpret in the middle of Wyoming, let alone going mm -hmm. to the Galapagos. But I guess. Well, one of the things we discovered early on um, that was very interesting to us was there there was almost no information about the Galapagos Islands in Spanish, and the people who live there are all Spanish speakers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there was information in all of the different languages for the tourists. And so if you went to the Galapagos Islands, you'd have no trouble finding information in German. But the very people who lived in the islands had nothing about the islands for them. Mm -hmm. And so we made a real effort at the Darwin Station to try to make information available. And one of the projects that we worked on, my wife and I worked with one of the guides and we wrote a seventh grade textbook for the school system in Spanish that was all about why the Galapagos Islands were, are cool. And it was filled <laughs> with games and activities and crossword puzzles and lots and lots of pictures and drawings and maps. And we did a profile of every single island in the island system about what was special about it. But then we used it as a... a book to teach about natural history, cultural history. We had a whole section on the human history of Galapagos. We had a whole mm -hmm. section on the geology of islands and how they formed. We had a section about how plants and animals got there and how they evolved. We had a whole section on conservation efforts to try to keep the Galapagos Islands and its species intact. And all of this was in Spanish. And when we started um, Getting, we got the Ministry of Education to um, approve the book and put it into all of the schools in the islands, and all the guides started buying them because there was no mm -hmm. resource like it that existed anywhere that was in Spanish. So you filled that void. That's. I think that's often an issue as as the just natural park and conservation movement spreads worldwide. I worked with a, a fellow graduate student when I was in graduate school from um, Mozambique, and... You know, they're in the United States. We have the fortune of, of natural national parks are largely for for us, and and certainly there's a lot of tourism involved. But um, it's a very interesting thing to be overseas and and have public land set aside primarily for foreign tourists, and and less so for you know your own countrymen. I guess. 
And then the huge question becomes, let's imagine that you're a farmer living on the outskirts of a park in Mozambique, or imagine that you're Mm -hmm. uh, somebody living in one of the towns in Galapagos, and it's clear that this land isn't for you, it's for foreigners, and you're being told, well, you can't go in there and hunt, you can't go in there and collect firewood, you're not allowed in there, you're not supposed to go in there, and there are animals that live in there that will come out of the park and eat your crops and then go back into the park and you can't do anything about it. And so it becomes a real challenging issue for um, national parks to, to make themselves relevant to people who live around them and say, no, here's a reason why we need to have this national park here. Mm-hmm. Because if the people who live around the park don't care about it or don't respect it or have no stake in it, they won't help preserve it. Mm-hmm. And, and they may go in and poach and they may go in and cut trees and, and so on. And that was part of what we were trying to do in Galapagos was encourage people, you know, the the fishermen not to go into protected parts of the marine reserve. We were trying to encourage boat captains not to throw their plastic garbage over the boats yeah. into the water and killing the sea turtles and penguins and things, you know. So it's this matter of, no, this is a really important place and it goes beyond just that a bunch of people from Germany want to come here and see it. It's that it's is unique in the world and it's part of your heritage and there's no other place in the world even remotely like the Galapagos Islands. It's very special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you we're talking about the textbook that you wrote in Spanish for the locals and stuff. You mentioned that you're also doing a um, double language project with your current organization up in Boulder. Would Do you want to go into a little detail about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so because I have had a lot of experience in Latin America and I'm a Spanish speaker and a lot of, you know, the people I got to know when I lived in Latin America were, you know, they, they were Latin Americans. I, it, there's a Latino guy down in my heart. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when I moved to Boulder with an adopted child that we adopted in Ecuador right before we finished our term at Galapagos, it was very important for me to reach out to the Spanish-speaking community in the Boulder area. Um, in part because public lands belong to everyone. They belong to all of us. They belong to you no matter if you're in a wheelchair or you speak another language or um, if the color of your skin is this or that. Public lands belong to the public. And public lands will exist only as long as the public cares about them. Mm -hmm. So as soon as people stop caring about public lands, they'll go away. A lot of the people in the Boulder area and who live in the Front Range of Colorado are Spanish speakers, and if they don't develop a love for and a caring for their public lands, uh, they won't be there to help participate in making sure that our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren mm-hmm. have public lands that they can visit. And so for me, it's, it's really important to reach out to everybody, not just Spanish speakers, but Spanish speakers is one of the stakeholders and public Mm -hmm. lands and say, these lands belong to you. We want you to come and enjoy them. We want you to see their value. We want you to visit them and feel welcome. And we want you to know that these are resources that belong to you as much as they belong to anybody else who pays taxes. And so with that in mind, I started doing a Spanish language outreach program to get the Spanish language people, frequently lower income people in Boulder, to feel invited to and welcome on the public lands around the city that the city owns. And so we've done a lot of programming in Spanish. We've done a lot of work with uh, like the I Have a Dream Foundation and Boulder County Head Start and uh, a number of different community organizations with membership that are largely Spanish speaking to make sure that they are invited to the lands. We'll go out and do nature programs in Spanish. We do a full moon hike for families and uh, bilingual Spanish English for the Boulder County Head Start mm-hmm. every May. At the you know we do the um, 
end of season picnic for um, Intercambio, which is a language teaching group in Boulder that teaches English to um, to newly arrived citizens. And so we try to make sure that we're getting that message across to people saying these lands are for you as much as they're for anybody. Please come, please enjoy them, please help us take care of them, please help protect them so that in three or four hundred years, your distant descendants mm. will still have access to these lands because public lands belongs to people who aren't, haven't even been born yet as well. And it would be a shame if my generation wrecked them to the extent that the future owners wouldn't be able to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. For sure. And the same goes with public institutions like the Riverton Du Bois Lander Museums. Um, we take advantage of the public lands just for our programs and stuff like that, but we're public institutions as well. So the whole idea of the moment people stop caring is the moment that we go away because we are trying to be the roots for the community around us. And so that's awesome that you've reached out to a huge community in Boulder and a lot of different cities and towns around the United States definitely need to take advantage of the fact there's that there's a lot of different languages out there and there's a lot of different uh, needs, physical, mental needs that need to be met um, through our educational programs and exhibits and things like that. So that is a that's an awesome project. Then you've definitely... Public lands belong to everybody and uh, people in wheelchairs, people, you know, we, we have programs for people with dementia and early memory loss. Um, mm-hmm. so we're trying to make sure that people's with, um, people with Alzheimer's have access to their public lands. It's essential that those of us who manage public lands find a way to make them relevant and important to every single person who helps support them. Mm-hmm. And the this conference that we're at, the National Association for Interpretation, I have met a lot of people with that same passion. The whole public lands are for everyone. Um, we need to help them, protect them, educate on them. And so a real quick question is just what brought you to NAI? I've been coming to NAI conferences for many years, and I love rubbing shoulders with Uh, my professional peers, I get all kinds of ideas. I always go back. I've been in this field for 40 years, and I always go back supercharged with new ideas and new directions, things I could try out, things I can steal from somebody else and adapt. I did a presentation here about how um, it's just one little tiny aspect of the stuff I'm doing up in Boulder, but how you can enrich nature hikes on public lands by bringing classical music in and making partnerships with local performing arts groups. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a tiny little aspect. So hopefully somebody will take that idea and get supercharged and run off to wherever it is they're from, from Schenectady, New York, or Atlanta, Georgia, or or Phoenix, Arizona, and Mm -hmm. implement some variation of that. I know I'm going to go home with a whole bunch of ideas that I'm going to rip off from other interpreters from all over the country that... I may be able to apply or adapt to my site mm-hmm. in a way that will make the lands and nature and the history of our site meaningful and relevant, maybe to some group of people I haven't even thought about yet. Right. The possibilities are endless. And I know for a fact that the Dubois Museum is definitely going to take your idea of enriching hikes. Um, uh, we're going to take it and run with it because that just is a whole kind of aspect that we had never even thought about. Um the pictures of birds we had we've got that down but the whole idea of adding the other element of music to hikes and just kind of adding that would be yeah so you talk, got one person mm-hmm. that's definitely going to do that um talk to me about how you can bring artists and art programs dance mm-hmm. song into the interpretive programming that you're doing because there's a lot of ways that you can bring the arts performing arts fine arts etc mm-hmm. and with with direct participation from people right into what you're doing and it so enriches what you do, and it opens up all of these potential avenues to meet new people and bring them in to um, share in, in your good mm-hmm. work. Yes. 
So you succeeded in that, um, and you are doing some awesome work. And I am so glad that I decided to stop you after your session and ask if you wanted to do this interview with us because I have learned so much uh, from you and the other guests that you invited uh, to join us. It's just been really awesome. And for our listeners out there, this has been Dave Sutherland. Um, If you want, if you have questions for him about what he's doing, about uh, his organization, uh, send us a message on Facebook or via email. And Dave, is there a way that people can get into contact with you that you'd like to share? They can absolutely email me. And my email address is sutherlandd at bouldercolorado.gov, that's S-U-T-H-E-R-L-A-N-D-D, at bouldercolorado, all one word, dot gov. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. Thank you so much to Dave, who visited with us on the podcast this month. And thanks for our listeners, to our listeners for sticking with us through this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. We have several more podcast episodes planned for you guys, including four more mini episodes that explore the different ways people can explore and rediscover the world around them through interpretation. If you liked what you heard today, like us on Facebook at Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. You can also catch us on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, the podcasting app of your choice. And remember, we are part of the 10Cast network, so check out 10cast.county10.com. And if, we, if you've already followed Rediscover the Winds on our various platforms, thank you. Your support means the world for to us. I mean, we do this we do this because we love it, but we do it because we love you guys too. So we hope you guys get the chance to visit our museums or attend some of the upcoming museum events. And if you want to know more about that, check out our Facebook pages um, or listen to the last episode for a recap. Okay. So thanks again to Dave and all of the other guests that we were able to visit at the uh, NAI conference. And thanks to you guys for listening to this episode. I am Zach Larson from the Riverton Museum. And I'm Kirsten from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center. And we look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you next time. <laughs>